Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In October 2017, the MacArthur Memorial and the Hampton Roads Naval Museum hosted a World War I symposium entitled Over Here, Over There. Joe Judge, curator of the Hampton Roads Naval Museum, presented this talk entitled For the Pressing Need of the Service, the Origins of Naval Station Norfolk. The great international conflicts of the 20th century transformed Norfolk forever. And it was the development of Sewell's Point at, that set a pattern of give and take with the federal government that was established in 100 years ago in 1917, and its effects are still with us today. And today I'm going to talk to you about the origin of the most visible element of the Navy's relationship with Norfolk, that is the naval station Norfolk at Sewell's Point. The Navy recruiting service had been developed at a time when the Navy, as always, was chronically short of men. In the early 20th century, the Navy's efforts met with enough success so that a large number of recruits from all across the country came into the Navy. So the problem then was how are you going to train this large group of landsmen? The time-honored method was to send the recruits directly to cruising vessels. The position of these unfortunates was quickly found to be untenable as the officers and men found them to be helpless landlubbers. To address the problem, the Navy designated training ships for landsmen, including one like the Hartford, which was here at the Naval Station for many years. But this was only part of the problem. While the basic training could be accomplished on a ship, the men also had to acquire increasingly sophisticated skills. By 1905, the debate was largely over because the training squadron was disestablished. The training station known as St. Helena was established in the Berkeley section of Norfolk in 1908 on the site along the Elizabeth River just opposite the Navy Yard. The commanding officer of the training station was also in command of the receiving ship. You see the picture at the bottom there. The old Richmond was one and Cumberland was the other. And it was a considerable camp on shore. This had a total capacity of 3,500 men. This is a picture of St. Helena. Despite the fact that Norfolk was used as a training station, it was an appendage of the Navy Yard and relied on the Navy Yard for support. It was also overcrowded. Captain Albert C. Dillingham in 1907 opined that the training station at Norfolk seems to be without an official status and there are not proper facilities caring for the command that should exist. This was part of the background to the establishment of the Naval Station at Sewell's Point, and you see there what they were called bungalows. They actually were, those are canvas tent flaps that came down. You can imagine in wintry conditions what it was like to stay there. This is a picture of the Norfolk Navy Yard, which despite being the home of the Atlantic Fleet, was suffering from years of neglect. Equipment was outdated. Supply storage was so lacking that material was in danger of rotting by being left outdoors. At the end of 1915, the shipyard supply officer notified the commandant that, quote, in the event of war, the supply department would not be able to adequately outfit 30% of the fleet. The deteriorating condition of one of the nation's most historic and potentially important shipyards was brought to the attention of powerful people in the government who would prove to be major allies to the region. One on the left was Claude Swanson. 
He was a powerful Democratic Party leader and one of the most successful Virginia politicians of the era. He served seven terms in the House of Representatives, was governor of the state, and was U.S. Senator from 1910 until 1933. Swanson actually was Secretary of the Navy under President Franklin Roosevelt from 1933 until his death in 1939. While he was in the House, Swanson presided over a raucous time in state politics, culminated in the adoption of, of the Constitution of 1902 that was notorious for disenfranchising African Americans and poor whites. As governor, he instituted a series of reforms and continued his strong belief in the U.S. Navy. He was convinced of the wisdom of refurbishing Virginia's naval infrastructure. Thomas Martin was a railroad attorney, another longtime senator from Virginia, an architect of the Democratic Party machine during his time that was known as the Martin Organization. Although accused by his critics of bribery and corruption, Martin stayed in power and managed to rise to the position of Senate Majority Leader in part because of his willingness to forge coalition between combating wings of the Democratic Party. As a result, his, the Martin machine and its successor, the Byrd Organization, dominated Virginia politics for much of the 20th century. But the most important supporter of naval expansion in Norfolk was the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels. He was editor and publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer, a major editorial voice in the South. He was appointed Secretary of the Navy by President Wilson in 1913. A number of his naval reforms included abolishing the wine mess for officers, the introduction of women into the Navy, as John alluded to, it's also the centennial of that this year, and the establishment of service schools on ships and stations. He liked to show great interest in the, in the common man. For instance, inaugurating a practice of making 100 sailors from the fleet eligible for entrance into the Naval Academy. The man who abolished alcohol from naval vessels in 1914, therefore, could disregard certain customs and traditions and allow women into the service. One biographer wrote of Daniels that his soft, reedy voice and coastal plain accent could easily cause a potential opponent to confuse Daniels' good manners and reserve with an absence of gravitas and thus lead an opponent to underestimate the intelligence and drive of the down-home editor. Now about Daniels, it has to be said, he also had extremely racist point of view, so much so that even almost 100 years later, there was a exhibit in the Pentagon commemorating the centennial of the Naval Reserve Force, and <clears throat> Secretary Daniels was going to be featured in this exhibit in a big quote, and his racial views were considered so toxic that a huge uh, debate ensued, and his name in this quote was, in fact, removed from the exhibit, and that happened just a couple years ago. But the first fruits of these congressional uh, and Senate powerhouses and, and the Secretary of the Navy was dry dock number four at the Norfolk Navy Yard, shown here. This was important because Norfolk was trying to push away competition for shipbuilding from Newport News in Philadelphia. Of course, the president at the time, as we saw in the great introductory film, Woodrow Wilson, he was discouraged by the failure of the belligerents to come to terms. So in early 1916, he initiated a widespread program of military preparedness to make the nation ready if forced into war. The National Defense Act, the National Appropriations Bill, the U.S. Shipping Board Act, but it was the Military Deficiency Appropriation Bill that was going to change Norfolk's history. 
So these powerful figures in the government agreed about the need for building up the naval infrastructure. The next question came, where to put the training station? Now in 1907, Virginia and the nation celebrated the 300th anniversary of the establishment of the English colony at Jamestown, Virginia. Sewell's Point was developed as a World's Fair site to commemorate this anniversary. Known as the Jamestown Exposition, fair ran for six months and highlighted advances in American technology, education, and government. Daily military parades and carnival sections were popular. There was even a section with incubator babies, and I'm happy to say one of the most unusual calls I've received was an incubator baby called me a, uh, a couple of years ago who had been an incubator baby at the Jamestown Exposition and now lives happily in California. Not everyone was happy with the Jamestown Exposition. In fact, it lost money. The original impulse of the organizers was for some kind of commercial development at Sewell's Point. This was not forthcoming, so it was not the case that there was going to be inevitable development there. What was going to happen? This man was a promoter of the Navy coming to Sewell's Point, Theodore Jackson Wool. He graduated from UVA Law School and emerged as a proponent of the Jamestown Exposition Company that ran the fair and was eventually a vice president. In 1908, he joined the quest with the Senate bill for a $1 million appropriation to purchase the Jamestown Exposition lands. Now, Wool was very knowledgeable about Sewell's Point. He recognized that there were buildings there that could be used immediately, that, uh, but that a heating plant needed to be installed. He knew that there was a reservoir holding 2 million gallons of water and a pumping station that was built for the exposition and that there was a, a well system also located near to the property, plenty of safe drinking water on the property and adjacent land. Now, in 1908, the Senate bill lost steam and was never enacted. However, Wool had planted the seed in the government's mind of the idea of putting a naval station on Sewell's Point. As part of his advocacy, he wrote a pamphlet uh, that you see there called Reasons, in which he listed uh, the reasons that the Navy should purchase Sewell's Point. This included the deep anchorage of the Chesapeake Bay, which was normally ice-free, the availability of vacant land, the mild climate that could support year-round military operations, and the existence of a transportation network in the area, both railroads and maritime. War was declared in April when President Woodrow Wilson asked a special joint session of Congress, and that came on April 6th. On April 30th, the Military Deficiency Appropriation Bill was reported to the House Committee on Appropriations. The Senate, in turn, burdened the bill with close to 100 amendments, one of which, number 68, was Secretary Daniels' plea for a naval operating base at Sewell's Point. This amendment was a major bone of contention as the bill was, began to be debated. Daniels worked hard, and his testimony carried the day, especially his points that the water off the point was deep already and that recruits from Sewell's Point could report directly to their ships rather than having to be transported across most of the United States from the naval station at Great Lakes. As a result, money was appointed for land and development. Earlier I mentioned Admiral Albert uh, Dillingham. This is Albert Caldwell Dillingham, who took charge of the construction of the new facility on July 4, 1917. Dillingham was a veteran of the Civil War, actually in the Army, but he had a long interest in training and improving the life of the American sailor, which he expressed, uh, among other places, in a series of articles in the Naval Institute Proceedings. 
he took charge of establishing the base with Verve. Uh, we have a uh, newsletter that's available called The Daybook, and then that newsletter is a first-hand account from one of the first recruits here, Roger Coppinger, who reported in 1917, and one of the first people he met was Albert Dillingham, and Coppinger at that time described him as a fierce-looking officer in a white uniform who burst out of an office and when in one of the loudest voices I ever heard, demanded to know what we were doing there. Dillingham looked us over very disparagingly, shook his head several times, and remarked on the way that we wore our hats, our poor shoe shines, our unmilitary bearing, our general lack of promise, and observed that we should all be at sea learning to sail ships and fire guns. The property at Sewell's Point when taken over was densely covered with underbrush, and the improvements during the Jameson Exposition were in a very poor state of repair. All of the temporary buildings had been removed, and there remained on the site only a central group consisting of an auditorium building, a hall of history, and a number of state buildings. We'll see those in a minute. Approximately eight million yards of dredging was performed on various fronts. This work was performed by two contractors at a cost of about over two million dollars. The material was moved by the suction dredges that you see here, and it was pumped through the pipes into the areas behind the bulkhead. So they were simultaneously dredging the waterfront, then pumping the dredge onto the land to build up the land, which is now filled in a little but golf, a golf course, among other things. Now, the Navy had little choice but to import labor for the base, and indeed for the entire war effort. Workers came from across the eastern United States and even from west of the Mississippi River. Defense employment stressed local businesses because unskilled labor found a better deal with Uncle Sam than with civilian employers. So these complaints from local businesses flowed to the young assistant secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, who simply pointed out that the Navy really did not recruit local labor per, per se and nothing could be done. Now, this was part of the broader view of the Navy in Washington that the, the businesses in Norfolk would simply have to raise wages to match the government and that this was a local problem. However, even with the influx of 40 to 50,000 workers, the Navy still had to impress enlisted men into construction work. The situation was finally handled by the District Board of Control in March 1918. This was established... Uh, with representatives from the Army, the Navy, the Department of Labor, the Shipping Board, the Railroad Administration, and other agencies. The board outlawed contract labor on the base in June 1918 and oversaw the shifting of workers from non-essential to essential war industries. The board also addressed strikes, of which the largest was a one-day work stoppage by carpenters at the Naval Station. The board also devised a standard scale for government work. The city also grappled with other effects from its giant new neighbor. Early piecemeal efforts to house the new workers resulted in tents and temporary shelters throughout the city. The U.S. Housing Corporation eventually stepped in and began, neighborhoods like Glenwood were developed to house base workers. Transportation problems were solved more easily as the federal government spent millions of dollars to improve roads, railway lines, and ferries. Active construction work on the training camp began on July 4, 1917. Within a period of 30 days, housing for over 7,000 men had been constructed, consisting of barracks, mess halls, lavatories, storehouses, 
water systems, lighting, roads, th and three miles of standard gauge railroad to afford access to the base. By October 1917, less than four months from the date of approval and the act of authorization, one regiment from St. Helena had moved to the new naval operating base with appropriate ceremonies. From this date, the population of the station increased rapidly. From a complement of 1,669 in October 1917, the station increased to a total of 12,693 by November 1918, the, the end of the war. I mentioned earlier some of the remaining buildings from the exposition that were used by the Navy. There was a central exhibition group of state pavilion uh, houses, a row of buildings now known as Admiral's Row, which serves as flag housing. These were never intended to be dwellings. They were exhibit, building, exhibit buildings. Nevertheless, the Navy determined that they were, quote, of permanent character, unquote, and converted them into officers' quarters. At the bottom there is the main auditorium building, which served as the Naval District and Base Administration offices and also a movie theater for the recruits. Now, the main function of the Naval Station is training, both in time-honored Navy pursuits like semaphore and more modern engineering skills. The electrical school was first designed for the, to teach students how to operate boilers. The steam produced electricity, which was distributed throughout the building for the benefit of other students learning how to use electrical appliances. They also learned how to work on storage batteries and gas engines. Later, an especially interesting adjunct to the electrical school was constructed, this being a building known as the USS Electrician, which was shaped as a battleship. It, I always thought it was a shame that this didn't survive and could be the Hampton Roads Naval Museum. Besides classrooms, this building had many electrical appliances such as and other systems on board for students such as searchlights, cranes, signals, a moving turret, and ventilation devices. Another function of the early base was an air station. The Naval Air Station was founded in 1918 by a detachment of officers and students who came from the Curtis Company Airfield in Newport News. They moved to 150 acres on the exposition site. Of course, Hampton Roads was the scene of the first successful flight from ship to shore by uh, Eugene Ely in November 1910. So there was a, a naval aviation heritage uh, here anyway. The water area enclosed for the air station included two old government piers. There were temporary wooden hangars, shop buildings, and an office building and a, a launching pier for the seaplanes. There was also a lighter-than-air division, which was prim primarily used for patrol work. And you'll see in some of the early pictures of the base, the giant lighter-than-air hangars. Another function of the Naval Station was supply. The fleet needed millions of square feet of storage. And at the Sewell's Point location, a general warehouse was started in 1917, which included a cold storage and ice manufacturing plant. There was also open storage for non-perishable materials, followed by large temporary storehouses, and in 1919, many more temporary buildings and three permanent storehouses, including a three-story airplane storehouse. Pier construction also carried on. There were six piers initially, each 125 feet wide with 300-foot slips. These piers, too, directly were opposite the supply base. Number two and three were the first, uh, first ones constructed. 
Now, ironically, the naval station was constructed to train sailors and prepare them to go to the fleet. But the pressure of wartime on the Navy made it impossible to do this as completely as one would like. Once again, we'll hear Seaman Coppinger's experience. He writes, as many of us had never been to sea, it was decided to try us out on a Coast Guard cutter, the Pamlico, which had patrolled the North Carolina Sounds. We spent a day on board enjoying ourselves very much. It was especially good as several of us found a place where we could hide and have a nice sleep. We decided that that's the kind of duty that we would like. Later on, we had to write a thesis on the ship and the day's activities, which was not as pleasant as the cruise itself. So if you think about his experience, Coppinger actually went to a kind of officer candidate school at the time, which was held in the old uh, Pennsylvania uh, exhibit building, future home of the Hampton Roads Naval Museum. So he uh, became an officer and progressed to the fleet, having been on one ship, a Coast Guard cutter, in the North Carolina Sounds. So these, uh, in World War I, many of these recruits, even though they were progressing through the training station, they arrived into the fleet uh, very, very green. It was uh, only later that the real cycle of training that would benefit the Navy became established. Now, there were a pattern was set for a series of future problems uh, at the Naval Station with the community, one of which, uh, long-serving, was the settlement, the purchase price for the Jamestown Exposition homes. Uh, the Navy had the Congress appropriated a certain amount of money, and of course the people who lived there deemed that to be way too low. And there was litigation that really wasn't settled till the 1930s. And even when I went to the give a talk at the Currituck Library um, in North Carolina about the origin of the Naval Station, a, a well-meaning uh, attendee there raised her hand and said, I just want you to know that you have uh, stole, <laughs> the Navy stole my family's home on Sewell's Point, and I want to know what you're going to do about it. So I said, well, the museum is free. There were also problems that we're familiar with today, which began almost immediately with transportation, moving people on and off the naval station. Race relations was another problem that would continue to be an issue for the Navy throughout the 20th century. In fact, when Josephus Daniels came to uh, scout Sewell's Point and try to understand the location of the naval station, one of the, they, he was toured around and assured that there were certain areas of the city where the sailors would not be allowed to go. But as the uh, basketball coach Pat Riley famously once said, what's the main thing? Because the main thing is the main thing. And the main thing of the Navy at Sewell's Point is the immense economic change that it brought to the city. And the you see there, that is a relatively uh, the newest report. You can go on the uh, Commander Navy Region Mid-Atlantic website has economic reports, economic impact reports available dating back to the 1980s, which give a vivid picture of what this installation has meant to the, the community just in terms of jobs, the economy, and, and so on. And of course, at the bottom there is what the base looks like today. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.